Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time together. We pray that you will speak to us, show us how to make this practical. And we just thank you in advance for sending the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jared Thurman, and Jason Churchill and I are excited to share with you something that we are both very passionate about, which is urban missions. How do you reach the mass of the population? For the first time in the last, I think it's 50 years, the majority of the world now lives in a city. And this is, this is unlike it's ever been before. Used to people farmed, now hardly anyone knows a farmer. So we live in a different world, and there's different things that need to be used of how to reach people. And we're going to look at some of those today. The first part is called the Keys to Gotham City, and the second part is called the Waldensian Secret. So this is a two-part presentation. I'm going to give the first part, lay the foundation, and Jason is going to share the second part of the Waldensian Secret. So we're going to jump right in. Now you're probably thinking, why in the world the Keys to Gotham City? How many of you are familiar with the Batman comic books and thematic? Okay, that's pretty much everyone in the room. Okay, I want to give you a little history of that because I think you're going to see it's very practical. Writer artist Frank Miller has stated, Metropolis is New York in the daytime. Gotham City is New York at night. Locations used as inspiration for the filming or for comic book illustrations for the, the uh, city of Gotham have included New York City, Los Angeles, London, Chicago, Pittsburgh, Newark, Tokyo, and Hong Kong. The reason for that is very specific. Writer Bill Finger says, on naming the city Gotham City, I flipped through the New York City phone book and spotted the name Gotham Jewelers and said, that's it, Gotham City. We didn't call it New York because we wanted anybody in any city to identify with it. So everyone could identify with Gotham City, one reason being because many cities have always been portrayed as parts of Gotham on different continents of the world. Now Gotham City as New York City is kind of interesting because the nickname for New York City was known as Gotham long before the comic books gave it to it. Uh, Batman introduced this name in 1939, the comic books. But the nickname was popularized in the 19th century. Having been first attached to New York by Washington Irving, in the November 11, 1807 edition of the Salamagundi, a periodical which lampooned New York culture and politics. So there was a reason for this. And we're going to see in a minute why there was the reason for this. But talking about New York City, Ellen White makes some fascinating statements. One of those, the Lord desires a center for the truth to be established in the great wicked city of New York. That's Evangelism 388. Another one, those who bear the burden of the work in greater New York should have the help of the best workers that can be secured. Here, let a center for God's work be made, and let all that is done be a symbol of the work the Lord desires to see done in the world. That's Evangelism 384. What God wants to do in the entire world, he wants to use New York City as the model. It's kind of interesting. Now, when we say the wicked city of New York, we're not necessarily talking about every person that's there, but we're definitely throwing the people in who, who are involved with sex trade and rape and murder and anger and lust and all these sins that, that we can bring up. So it's not necessarily 
every person in New York, but there are some evil things that take place in the large cities of this world. Sex slavery is an awful one I began to study more of recently. Okay, let's keep going. Gotham City is like every city. On that concept, um, most recently the portrayal of Gotham City is that of a dark, foreboding metropolis, rife with crime, grime, corruption, and a deep-seated sense of urban decay. Does that sound like most cities? So that's the reason. I just want you to think, Gotham City is every city. And, and what is it that we can learn from this? Ellen White makes something, uh, a statement very profound about this culture and this climate that we're living in at this time. In the book Education, page 228, she says, At the same time, anarchy is seeking to sweep away all law, not only divine, but human. The centralizing of wealth and power the vast combinations for the enriching of the few at the expense of the many, the combinations of the poorer classes for the defense of their interests and claims. That would be the unions as an example of that. The spirit of unrest, of riot and bloodshed. The worldwide dissemination of the same teachings that led to the French Revolution. All are tending to involve the whole world in a struggle similar to that which convulsed France. And if you want to study what happens when cities really revolt against religion and society as a norm, go and look at the history of what took place in France. Unbelievable anarchy. And when we see these riots breaking out, that's just a taste of what that's about. So a little more on the, the history of Gotham, because this is where it gets practical. Uh, the history of Gotham, the word is pronounced Gotham or Gautam. We're going to see where that comes from in a second. The interesting thing is that Jesus talks about a profound parable of how the world will be divided at the close of Earth's history. And I want to tell you about the name Gotham City. Irving took the name from the village of Gotham, Nottinghamshire, England, a place that, according to folklore, was inhabited by fools. The village's name derives from Old English gat or goat, and ham or home, literally homestead where goats are kept, and is pronounced Gotham, a similar name which has not undergone a pronunciation shift. I find it interesting that the most popular city of the DC universe, this is another statement, is known often as the capital of the world. You go and look this up on Wikipedia and things, New York City known as the capital of the world. You could throw commerce capital of the world in there. You could throw fashion capital, obviously, dueling with Paris. You could throw all these different reasons of why New York City is the capital of the world. For a short period of time, it was actually the capital of the United States. Not a lot of people know that. Oh, went too fast. So this parable that Jesus describes is of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 36 specifically. It says, And before him shall be gathered all nations. He shall separate them one from another. As a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. And we're going to see that the reality of it is we all by nature are goats. Stubborn, naturally wanting to congregate in certain ways. And it's easy to say, well, yeah, Gotham City, people who live in the big cities are goats. I'm not. When the reality is we all have these tendencies. And we have to realize that. We have to realize, you know what? Without the grace of God, I would be a goat eating trash like I was. 
and God has brought me and he's made me a sheep. So we need to see that this parable that Jesus gives is for our benefit, and we can't get too high and mighty to say, well, shame on those goats, but I'm a faithful sheep now. Only by daily transformation can God keep us a sheep. Otherwise, we're a goat, and people can easily be transformed from a goat to a faithful sheep by something that can take place in their lives. So we need that total transformation every single day, or we go back to where we once were, eating the trash and living that experience. Now, I can tell you that uh, this experience of being a goat and hopefully the Lord's leading me to be a, sh- a faithful sheep, that it's, it's not always easy to go on a journey of transformation because a lot of times you don't know where you belong. And I can tell you that that has kind of been my story over the last few years. Uh, and I started to be very uh, antagonistic to preachers that would preach a message of love. Oh, Jesus loves me. Here's another one of those messages. And I'm really frustrated by it. And I'm like, I need truth. I need deep truth. And where that usually can lead someone, and I can tell you it led me down that path, you you become very much focused on the law and and the legalistic aspects of it because you're fighting against an extreme. But then you have another set, and I'd like to call it like two railroad tracks. You have another point of view, which is I want nothing to do with legalism or the law. I want love. I want to feel that Jesus loves me no matter what. If I cheat on my wife, I want to know at the end of the day that Jesus loves me. If I'm addicted to this, if I'm smoking this, eating this, doing this, I just want to know at the end of the day that no matter what, Jesus loves me. That I'm saved in my sins. So I'd like to propose those are two railroad tracks. And at the end of the day, love is the name of each of those tracks. So think of a railroad track. Both of them have the name love stamped on them. God is love, and God is love. But they can come across very differently. And I just want to share with you something that helped me see how close they are, yet how far away they really are. See, we can love people even though they're sinning, or we can love people only if they stop sinning. And I'd like to say both of those can get muddled up in these camps. Ellen White starts the Conflict of the Ages series with God is love. She ends it with God is love. The entire essence of scripture is God is love. He's loved us so much. This is what he's done for us. This is what he can do in your life. And this is what he will do in your life. And Adventists for a long time have preached, well, you know what? There's a crisis coming and and love, uh, cheap love, cheap grace, you know, that's the dangerous deception. I didn't really understand it as much as I have recently And we talk a lot of things about emergent church, and some of that was mentioned this morning, and all these different things. But a statement that helped me really see how close this is to the real thing is in the book Great Controversy, on page 558. Um, It says, love is dwelt upon as the chief attribute of God. How many believe that sounds good? I can raise two hands and say, that sounds good. Love is dwelt upon as the chief attribute of God. But it goes on, it doesn't stop there. It says, but it is degraded to a weak sentimentalism, making little distinction between good and evil. God's justice, his denunciations of sin, the requirements of his holy law are all kept out of sight. This is the new definition, Ellen White says, of spiritualism. And I like to say it's literally three and a half feet from what true love is all about. So we have to be very careful with which camp we keep our feet in and know that there are two ditches 
on the side of the pathway of truth. Love being the foundation of both. And th that's not, not what this message is about. But I want to challenge you to really study that out because this is, at the end of the day, this is what it's about, the love of God. But what does that love do in a life? How does it change me so that I treat you a certain way? How does it interact with you and your relationship with others and with God? And this is what it is going to all come down to, how we love God. How do we understand he loves us? Because spiritualism's foundational principle is love. And we're going to have to understand that's, that it's different, but it's, it's like a railroad track coming down the same pathway. Okay, Jesus makes a promise with his principles of love. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, verse 18. Now, that's a strong principle, I think, primarily dealing with death. Nothing can stop his power to resurrect us, either from the old life or in the resurrection. I think that's the, probably the primary application. I'm not a theologian. But I want to pro um, propose that the gates of hell have been set up around every major city in the world. And Jesus makes a promise, I will build my church, and the gates of these cities will not stop us from winning souls. And that's a promise. Because we look at these great cities of Tokyo and Delhi and Shanghai, and if you've tried to do anything in them, whether it's start a business, start a church, or live, you know that the regulations can almost seem impossible. So our window to easily reach people in the mass centers of population has passed. It's totally passed. Ellen makes that clear. The easy window has passed. Now we are going to have to work in a time of difficulty. And that's what we're really emphasizing here today. Now, some of the points that are made are very strong statements. The first one, do you not know that unless you carry the truth to the cities, there will be a drying up of means? That's General Conference Bulletin 1909, page 136. Now, another confirmation that uh, Ellen White knew what she was talking about. According to the Federal Reserve, as reported in the Washington Post on June 11, 2012, Americans saw 40% of their wealth dry up from 2007 to 2010. The fulfillment of this is taking place. How many of you feel you're more broke now than 10 years ago? I'm going to raise two hands, and I was even in college. It is so much more difficult to start a business now, to find a house, to do anything. So much more difficult. This is taking place. People that used to say, hey, you know what, I'll give you $5,000 for your mission trip. Sounds like you're going to build a church and you're going to go to India for a month. Da, 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 da. Now, I can give you 50 bucks, but times are tough. My business is suffering. Da, 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 da. Everything is more difficult now. I believe it's the fulfillment of that. So we have this situation, all right, we've been called into these cities to reach the population. And yet at the same time, we're all familiar with statements that say, Get out of the cities. Are we familiar with those statements too? Okay, so then we have this issue. What do we do? Into the cities, out of the cities. I'm confused. And that's the question many people are dealing with right now. Should I be in the country or should I be in the city? And I can tell you from studying this a lot, it is a deeply spiritual experience trying to figure out what to do. Then maybe even put your home for sale. All right, Lord, I want to move to the country. People are sincere about this. Um, and then your home doesn't sell perhaps. I can say that my family and I, we've had our homes for sale for almost four years now. We have this desire to move out. But I want to couch it with, too often, the 
desire is there, but I don't, I'm not sure we know all the details. Now, there's two camps of this. One will argue one side, and one will argue the other. I'm going to argue both, just so we're clear. Uh, manuscript 76, 1905. Ellen White says, there is not one family in a hundred who will be improved physically, mentally, or spiritually by residing in the city. I think it's clear by the richest of the rich who live in the Northeast, they come in from their country home into the city. I believe this is literally a God-given desire to have a country home and a city home. On the new earth, we are told we get a country home and a city home. Deep down within all of us, I believe that's a desire. Now, the counsel is, though, leave the cities. What are some of the reasons people are to get out of the city? Let's just throw some out there so we're all on the same page. Health reasons, okay? Raising children. Raising children. What is it? Influence of the surroundings, yeah, billboards and advertising, whatever it may be, okay. Any other reasons one would want to live outside of a major city? Dangers, yeah, crime, okay. Raise a garden. Raise a garden. The atmosphere helps us feel oppressive. Atmosphere in a city feels oppressive. The noise and the air and just everything is oppressive. Okay, okay, yeah, thank you for sharing those. So there's, there's some reasons. Uh, there's shows on National Geographic sharing, uh, showing the preppers. Anybody heard of the preppers? This is not some common or simple little thing that's confined to Adventism right now. The world is prepping for a crisis. This is not confined to Adventism. So we've been told, well, you know what? You need to get out of the cities, work them like Enoch did, come into them, and go out. Unfortunately, I've seen too often that we move so far out that we forget this principle of working the city. Uh, Jason is going to speak to you more about the application of starting something in a city. If Jason lived three hours out, how practical is it for him to wake up at three in the morning to get into the city by six with no traffic, to work all day, to be done by seven, to get home at 10.30, to get up at three? He will be James White in a very short amount of time, i.e. dead before his time. So, so then this creates a predicament. Well, then should he live in the city? Then who's going to open that thing up at 6 a.m.? Who's going to close it at 9.30 p.m.? You understand it's a predicament. Is that fair to say? It's a predicament. It's like, what do we do? So some of us, um, we say, you know what? I'm following the conviction, and I, I want to tell you deep down, this is what got me stirred up. Look, there is a crisis coming. I'm no idiot. I can watch CNBC. I can watch them say, look, when this thing goes down, this week, this is what was stated. When this thing goes down, it won't be gold that you need. It'll be lead. That's a gun joke. You'll need bullets. Very accurate assessment. That's the world. That's secular science. When the crisis hits, it's chaos anarchy. And I just want to dwell on this for a second because oftentimes this is where the whole plan goes done. Uh, we have an example of Stephen Haskell and his wife living in downtown New York City in their 60s or so. And Ellen White says of his work, you are where God needs you. Not get out of the city, you're where God needs you. Now, I want to tell you that all the reasons we listed to live out of the city are very good reasons. And they're excellent reasons, actually. There are a hundred reasons I could write down right now of why you should live out of a city. But we have to consider this concept that Jason's going to talk about of what about, what about the restaurants we're supposed to open? 
What about the guy I'm supposed to meet at 7 a.m. to have a Bible study, 2 p.m. to do this, 3 p.m. to do this, whatever it may be. And oftentimes, I don't mean to say this in a wrong way, but the Lord did not die for the trees of the northwest part of the United States, where many Seventh-day Adventists are hiding. He didn't die for them. And I don't believe he's ever coming back until we realize that. Now, I think we need to live out of the city, and I think there's three very key components that I'm convicted on that qualify someone to have in a country property. Number one, where the homes aren't close together. These are spirit of prophecy statements. Homes aren't close together, where you can grow your own food. And then there's a third one, though, we forget. Easy access to the city. That's not three and a half hours. And, and I'm saying the realistic in the South. That's the environment I see. I'm not talking about 14 and a half hours in the middle of Washington State or Idaho or all these uh, outback in this country. Now, I want to be clear. We have been called not to live in the cities. To follow the conviction, though, if you are someone who feels compelled of, I need to work the city, this may be for your current job. It may not be for an evangelistic-type restaurant. It can't be so far that it literally kills you before your life needs to end. And that's what's happening. So many situations. I have a friend who the other day just broke down. He said, I see all these people moving to the country. Their marriages are falling apart. They're getting sick. And many of them are coming back. Was it because of a certain distance? You know, we have to say to ourselves, is it, is it because I'm afraid of what will happen? Because at the end of the day, there will be casualties in this war. There will be sacrifices that need to be made. And I think there are some particularly those with young children, they have no business in the city. Raise those children because we're going to need them before the planet becomes extinct. I mean, let's be honest. We're going to need young people. And, and the amount of children being raised right now, I, I'm scared for what will happen in the next 30 years. Those parents need to go as far away from reality as possible. Raise a child. We need them to replace us when we die off. I hope I'm being sincere. I believe in country living. As soon as my home sells, I'm moving to the country. But I'm not moving so far that I can't commute to help him at 6 a.m. Because it will burn you out. And I'm convicted. I, I usually talk about health. More of us are going to die before the crisis than we realize because we aren't healthy. We're stressing out about the crisis. It's not even here yet. When we don't realize, and I'm going to read you a statement in the next slide, there's no crisis coming until we do something. The crisis is a reaction to something that the remnant will do. And I want to make that clear to you. Uh, Matthew 25 shows us the work that we have to do before us. Isaiah 58 makes it more clear, and it's the work in the cities. I want to, I want to quote to you Psalm 41, uh, verse 1. It says, Blessed is he that considers the poor, the Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. What a promise. If we want protection from all the crisis that we can conjure up, which there is a crisis right now, we are sheltered from it in North America. We're going to look at that more in a minute. I'll, I'll keep going. Thank you for sharing your time with me. All right. Are the angels even working right now? Around the world, I say yes. Many places, I say yes. But when I read this statement, I have to say, what is that statement about? Here it is. This is the home missionary, November 1, 1897. The church ought to have taken up this work in every conference. If the powers of thought which have been so fully occupied in devising plans which cannot succeed, notice these definitive words, cannot succeed, which have not the endorsement of heaven, 
had been put into devising plans to carry out the very work of the Lord has been calling them to do in reaching the people where they are, which is in the cities, the work would have been borne by many instead of by the few. This work is the work the churches have left undone, and they cannot prosper until they have taken hold of this work in the cities, in highways, and in hedges. Then, so I just want to pause for a second. After we take hold of the work in the cities, this is what's about to happen. Then, angels of God will cooperate with human instrumentalities, and a religious system will be inaugurated to relieve the necessities of suffering human beings who are in physical, mental, and moral need. Jason shared this with me the very first time I read it. I had to stop, I had to pray, I had to realign my religion and say, Lord, then the angels will cooperate? You mean that's why it seems like our efforts just aren't working? And the Lord basically, with a loudspeaker, unless you take hold of this work in the cities where my people are, if you do this, then the angels will cooperate with you. Then a religious system will be inaugurated. An inauguration is the beginning of something. This is, I know this is heavy, and when I read it, I was like, what, what does this look like? Instantly, I thought, well, you know what? We need to get some big evangelism events going. Wow, this is it. That's not it. People are tired of hearing the message. How many of you have ever turned on a televangelist? Okay. Tell me your feelings of that. Just with your facial expressions, I'd like to see your feelings. Thank you. Disgust. I'll be honest. It's disgust of me. It's like, that man has 21,000 people in a building, and they pay him? I want to throw up. If it were not for the writings of Ellen White and studying the Bible in my own life, I would be an angry, anti-Adventist atheist. I want to be honest with you. Because I see that religious element in the world, and I want nothing to do with it. So the last thing that we need to be doing is just more preaching. We've done that. We've been down that road. People are tired of it. People want to see, does the gospel actually have power? Or does Jesus just love us and then leaves me a drunk? Because to be honest with you, I'm tired of being a drunk. I, I thank you for your message that Jesus loves me and maybe he'll save me, but I am tired of being a drunk. I'm tired of being addicted to pornography. I'm tired of going back to cocaine. I'm tired of beating my wife. I'm tired of my husband beating me. This is what the world's looking for. Does this thing have any power at all? Because audibly, it's, it's neat. It really is neat. But click, next channel. And here's what the world's doing. Let me just drown this out with something that makes me feel good right now. Because I'm tired of this. So I don't think the world needs to hear the principles of Isaiah 58 and Matthew 25. They need to experience it. And the only way you do that is one-on-one. -on -one. Not a phone call, not an email, not a text. All those things have their place. But the way this message gets around the world is when people say, I've been with John, Sally, Jenny. They're totally different. We were, we were in traffic, and somebody cut us off, and boy, you know I'd have given them what finger. And they just said, hey, it's all good. I mean, I've never seen such patience. We were downtown, and this guy jumped us with a gun, and, and the guy standing next to me says, hey, man, what do you really need? You need some food? What do you need? And people will start to see something is different about these people. What, why is it? What's different? And we can show them it's the message that I'm reading. It's Christ that has come into my life, and I'm experiencing something new. And, and this is where I live. This is what I eat. This is why I do it. You know, we get to explain to them what our life is all about. 
And I think it'll be a totally new experience than what we have had. But until we realize the purpose that Jesus is waiting on people to reach people with the message, that even us, we are spiritually constipated with all these messages we always hear. It's like, I've heard enough sermons. People send me a sermon on my email. I just want to automatically hit delete. I don't need to hear another sermon. I've got so much truth in here, I can teach a thousand people things they've never heard, and they'd say, oh, that's amazing. But that's not what the world's looking for. People are sick. People are dying. People are suffering. I love the 2,300 days, but you know what? I haven't eaten for a week. Can you give me something to eat? Brother, you need to be saved. You know, instantly, I'm, I'm speaking up here as one who's experienced these things. I'm not taking and robbing stories. These are my experiences. You know, this guy's probably going to die tomorrow night in some gunfight anyway. Why can't I just get him saved right quick and not worry about the rest of it? And that's just selfishness. Total selfishness. Because I'm not patient enough to say, you know what, the Lord has been patient with me. I need to be patient with this person. So, so there's a lot at work here. And there's a reason we do so many things well except in major cities. Because the devil has camped his gates around the cities because he says, you know what? The cities are mine. This is why there's so much emphasis in the spirit of prophecy about cities. And I want to share with you in the latter half of this presentation why there's such an emphasis on cities. Now, I hope the first half has been clear. I believe in living outside of the city. I believe it should be reasonable where you could easily get in and easily get out and easily get back in that day and easily come out. That may mean an hour, hour and a half drive. If you've got that in you, great. In a lot of cities, I have a friend that lives next to an international airport, 20 minutes from the city. He is in the middle of the wilderness. Boy, that's a dream. For some of us, we have to, maybe have to drive a while. But it has to be reasonable, where it's just it's not killing us, it's not wearing us out. So there's a balance there. And I'll be happy to discuss that more with you and share with you my studies. Okay, I want to share with you the history of a city. What is the purpose of cities? And did God intend for man to live in cities? Because at the end of the story, there's a city coming to be our new home, right? It's like, hmm, this is interesting. All right, so I want to go through a quick study. The first city was built by who? Anybody know? God. Who is it? God, okay. You're referring to the New Jerusalem? The Old Jerusalem, so a renovation. Okay, I'll give you that one. The first city on this earth was built by who? Are you sure? Final answer. Who is it? It's Cain. What was the name of that city? Enoch. The name of the first city was Enoch. And the great example of how to win cities is by a guy named Enoch. I think that was the Lord's way of saying, watch this. Okay? All right, so Enoch is the name of the first city, Genesis 4.17. After the flood, uh, we have cities like Sidon and Nineveh and Sodom and Gomorrah and Babylon. Uh, a lot of people don't know about these cities. People live typically in the walls of these cities. So when you see the measurements of the New Jerusalem, I believe with all my heart we're going to live in the walls. Because the ancient way they measured cities and what people did, like Jericho, Rahab lived in the wall. So it's interesting if we can start to visualize that. Uh, Babylon has a lot of similarities, I believe, to the, to the city of heavenly Jerusalem. Square, it's got a river running through it, gardens everywhere. Uh, people lived in the walls, golden city. Uh, I don't think that uh, God necessarily was the one who set it up, but I think a, a high angel that had been once to the city knew what it looked like. So, we see cities like Jericho, and, and when they get to the promised land, does God say, all right, everyone gets a city? 
No. He had a plan where he gave everyone their own land. And I want to show you that. God's plan for man was, Education 43, by the distribution of the land among the people, God provided for them, as for the dwellers in Eden, the occupation most favorable to development, the care of plants and animals. The most favorable things for your character development are caring for plants and animals. And if you care for animals, you know quickly why that's the case. <laughs> if you care for plants, boy, they're so delicate, and that's a character builder in itself. The second statement, Ministry of Healing 183, says, In God's plan for Israel, every family had a home on the land with sufficient ground for tilling. Thus were provided both the means and the incentive for a useful, industrious, and self-supporting life. And no devising of men has ever improved upon that plan. To the world's departure from it is owing to a large degree the poverty and wretchedness that exists today. Wow. Profound statement. So God intended man to live in a garden. That's why he did it the way he did. Two statements I absolutely am in love with are these, both in Isaiah. If the righteous ruled the world, God's people were everywhere, what would the earth look like? Here's what the Bible says. Isaiah 27, 6, Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. I think that's pretty cool. Second one is in Isaiah 14, 21. What if the wicked ruled the world? Prepare slaughter for his children, for the iniquity of their fathers, that they do not rise nor possess the land, nor fill the face of the world with cities. God's people rule the world, they fill it with gardens. They're farmer junkies. The wicked rule the world, they fill it with cities. Now my question to you is why? Have you ever thought about why has the devil always been about building cities? Why did Cain leave and say, you know what, I'm building a city named Enoch, here we go. Think about that for a second. What's that? Cities are about power. Cities are about control. And when you're in them, you, you stop realizing that so much, and you become dependent upon it. There is, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there? That one? No, it doesn't. You can't, uh, I think a statement is made that you can't have uh, any greater honest return for your hard work than growing your own food. Not possible. Now, it's hard work. It is very hard work. Okay, so there's a reason the devil is all about cities. It's about control. And there's a reason that prophecy in the Bible and the, the spirit of prophecy in the writings of Ellen White are so loaded with content about cities. There's a reason that Revelation is Babylon has fallen or is falling. Get out of her. Babylon, this great city, get out of the city. There's a reason for that. There's a reason Ellen White began to get so passionate. Get out, get out, get out. Because of the control factor. And in 1992, there was an agenda by the United Nations. Now, we're not going into conspiracy, so nobody be concerned here. That's usually a concern for people. Uh, agenda 21. What is the agenda for the 21st century? What will we as humanity do? Because, hey, you know what? Here we are at the end of the 20th century, and our resources are not as plentiful as they once were. 
the industrial age, things are happening, things aren't like they have been, what are we going to do in the 21st century? So Agenda 21 was created in Rio. George W. Bush signs it. America is behind it. What is Agenda 21? It's all about sustainable development. And you're going to start to hear some words you've probably heard. It's, it's a 40-chapter plus chapter document on what other, I, I can't really describe it any other way than socialistic themes. We can do this. Let's come together. We can make this happen. Here, let me close this for sound's sake. We can do this. We can make this happen. And you know what? It, it may be that we need to govern somewhat together. Let's bring this thing together. And let's be unified. Because we are on an unsustainable course as a, as a planet. And you know, private property, that's an issue. It's unsustainable. Irrigation, just wasting water like we do, it's unsustainable. The fuel usage, unsustainable. Commercial agriculture as it is, man, look how much water pollution and water that's being used and the farmlands that are being taken up. The pastures, all these things were brought as concerns to say, you know what, well then we need Agenda 21. And we need to have something called human settlement zones. Because the environment is supreme. We need to make sure we take care of the environment. The president signed it and executed on behalf of the United States. Bill Clinton, by executive order, continued it onward and created a Council for Sustainable Development. And there were these things called smart growth zones. This would be where educating the children would be very important because people have to be kind of retaught, re-educated to dwell in this new global society. A lot of people had never heard the word globalism before 20 years ago. So we really started to hear it. And then they said 2005 to 2015 would be the decade of education of sustainable development. The truth would become what the collectivity decided and consensus would rule. Now with this, you're going to see some of the sovereignty of nations start to disappear, things like constitutions and bills of rights. Look, that's going to have to take a backseat to sustainability. The more highly educated people, they consume more resources, and thus they're a threat to sustainability. That's a quote. Now here I want to read you this. This is a description I put together based on what I've studied about this. In the city of the future, we walk more, we bike more, we ride the trains more. There are more green spaces in cities. There are smaller apartments, less fossil fuels, less global warming. There's safety from terrorists via our use of technology, cameras all over the city. Uh, Chicago would be an example of this, which is the most dangerous city in the United States with the most cameras, interesting enough. Uh, we not necessarily want to say spying on people, but we want to keep watch on the communications. So we'll build large data centers, and uh, we'll watch people's emails and their phone calls and their texts. And you know what? We'll remove cash. Then we can stop the drug dealers and the bad stuff going on in the streets. Uh, NFC or near-field communication payments would take over, and we can use our phones for everything. It'll be an amazing world with these smartphones. Our appliances will become smart. We can control our thermostats. Annette and I have this little thermostat we control with our iPhones. think it's the coolest gadget ever. But all the appliances, they can even become smart. We can watch how much energy people are using. And those who are using too much, we can temper it down a little bit. People will watch the same movies, the same big networks, the same shows. They'll eat the same food, get the same sicknesses, need the same drugs, need the same social security checks welfare checks and disability checks 
And at the end of the day, everyone should be happy but not realize that they're trapped and dependent on the city to survive. Now, when I read this at first, I thought, oh, that's so goofy, like they're going to pull that off on me. I have to be honest with you. I wrote this. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> After I got all the little tidbits, more biking, more walking, parks, and I said, that's exactly where I want to live. That sounds like utopia. Riding the trains, who needs the cars? I'll walk, give me my bike. Vegan restaurant on every corner, everybody's juicing, saving the world. <laughs> Is that heaven? I'll be honest with you, I thought that's pretty close to my description of heaven. Everybody's happy. Everybody controls everything in their whole life on their iPhone. This is amazing. And then I realized their plan has worked. Because deep within Jared Thurman, my soul, I said, that's where I want to live. That's the city I want to live in that city. Because they'll probably be growing organic food on the walls of that city. This is amazing. And this, this is their plan to get people like me, regular Joe Schmoes, to say, I want to live there. Why would we have some no good farmer wanting to be an organic junkie with five acres living 90 minutes outside of the city with his Adventist thing? He's wasting water. He doesn't even know what he's doing. I've been to his farm. There's weeds. He's watering those weeds. And you know what? They throw away a lot of food. That's a waste. That needs to be under a controlled system. And I realized that's what's happened. The cities have been programmed into our brain to be cool. And these down-home redneck things are, I can say redneck because I'm in the South. I've been one of those. Uh, they're the thing that people look down upon. And this Agenda 21, I believe, has worked. The world is ready for this. Now there's a reason why not only people are needing to live in the city, but a lot of people want to live in the city. Uh, there's a thing in many cities called the white flight. All the white people move out of the city because all these urban projects and uh, you have all the low-income people in the middle of the city. Guess what's happening now? There's a switch happening. Not everywhere, not immediately. I can tell you it's happening in Atlanta in a lot of places. Total reverse. All the money is moving back into the city. Why? Because there's a restaurant on every corner. This guy will pick up my laundry. These people will deliver my food. It's like I've died and gone to heaven. Can anybody relate? Yeah, no traffic. Why would I deal with that traffic? I can walk to work. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, exactly. So, so I realized the devil is so smooth. No wonder God was so serious. Look, I don't want you living in these places because you're going to get trapped. Because here's some of the, the more um, logistical of it. The water is polluted. New NBC News report. I've got a video on if anybody wants to see it when we're done here today. Uh, the drinking water of over 40 or 50 million Americans has pharmaceutical drugs in it. Why do you do that? You suppress people's immune system, make them sick. I'll tell you why you do that in a second. Um, the air supply, it's, it's not that fresh. Let's be honest. The air supply is not that good in the city. The food is old. As organic and local as you want it to be, most of the food is old. The nutrients are not there. I'm talking even to the vegans. We're not going to talk about meat and all that other stuff. Those who want to eat really healthy. The food is old and the nutrients aren't there. Are you going to get a beautiful, sound night of sleep? No. The lights, the ambulances, all this stuff. So all these things are wearing people's immune systems down because prophecy tells us, those who subscribe to the biblical historical view, that the devil himself is coming as Christ to heal people. You don't heal people unless they're sick. 
And so he has to wear down the immune systems. And he's made a lot of us, Seventh-day Adventists, start arguing, we can't reach people if we don't live in downtown Atlanta. I don't agree with that. I absolutely believe everyone can live outside of a city, get you some land, and commute for the most optimal life that you can. Now, some, that may not be the case. Haskell, clearly, in New York City, there were some reasons why he had to be right there. So I'm not making a general rule. I'm making a principle to this statement that we need to live outside of these cities and work them. Get cars with better gas mileage. Realize on the drive-in, I'm a missionary to win souls. And Jason's going to bring more of this on. But I want to show you something in the Bible that the Lord showed me. Every time I study, I ask him, Lord, show me something you've never shown me before. And Lord, I've been studying Agenda 21, and it's easy to go off into the conspiratorial camp, so please show me something. Uh, and, you know, I've got a ton of spirit of prophecy in this. I love the spirit of prophecy, but it's good to see things out of the Bible because they have a totally raw, fresh element to them. So Genesis 47 is the story of, if you've ever related with, has God abandoned me? Anybody ever felt that experience? I could raise both hands. God has abandoned me. He is nowhere to be found, and I don't even know why I ever believed him in the first place. I want to tell you that I think Joseph felt that in a prison. I was sold into slavery. My family disowned me. You've disowned me. I'm rotting in this prison. And the good news is that God is working on his character because he must have been a little cocky brat like the story seems to read. God is working on him. And he says, not yet, Joseph. And he may be saying that with you and I. Not yet. He brings him out of the prison. And Joseph becomes the leader of the entire planet. Pharaoh was just a name. He basically said, you run it. You're the one who interprets dreams. Go for it. What are we doing? Joseph lays out a plan. There's going to be a famine. There's going to be a time of plenty. During the time of plenty, we're going to collect food. And during the time of famine, we'll have the food. Here's the game plan. Okay, run with it. I want to show you something fascinating. Uh, verse 13, Genesis 47, verse 13. It says, and there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very sore, so that the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan fainted by reason of the famine. Because of climate change, hear me out, I'm going to use 21st century language. Because of climate change, there was crop failures. This is why there's been such, so much issue in the Middle East. The price of food has gone crazy. That's where gold isn't worth anything. Lead is the name of the game. Get your bullets, get your food, and go home. This is what happened in Egypt. Climate change took place. Crop failures began to happen. There was famine in the land. And then it says, and Joseph, in verse 14, gathered up all the money. So the famine increased the commodity prices, and hyperinflation took place. And then the money failed. That's the reason money fails, hyperinflation. It's not worth burning. It says in verse 15, And when money failed in the land of Egypt, in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came unto Joseph and said, Give us bread. Why should we die in thy presence? For the money faileth. So the economy is now collapsed. Okay, now they start bartering their goods and services and selling their assets. Take our cows. Take our sheep. Look. Uh, they finally get to the point where they say, You know what? We don't even need private property anymore. Just take it. Whatever it takes will we'll depend upon the government. Okay? Now, what's amazing here is if they'd have kept their land and worked themselves, they should have grown their own food. But for some reason, it says in verse 19, Wherefore shall we die before thine eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for bread? 
and we in our land will be servants unto Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land be not desolate. The government controlled the seed. Genetic engineering is a totally different discussion, different topic. But the seed is being made to a point where it can no longer reproduce. So here in Egypt, they came to the government, or they came to the powers that be and said, please give us seed. We don't even have seed. All right, I think that's very interesting. The seed has been centralized to governing powers and authorities. Um, with that seed, they were taxed heavily. Basically, we'll grow this much, you get this much, so the taxes skyrocket. And for sustainability reasons, it says in verse 20, And Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for the Egyptians sold every man his field, because the famine prevailed over them, so the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he removed them to cities. In verse 21. But God had something special for his people. It says in verse 27, And Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen. There is so many reasons why God has given us the counsel that he has. This Agenda 21 is nothing but a repeat of what happened in Egypt. And, and I, I want to pray that we see the urgency that God has to say, look, there's a reason to do this work. The angels are waiting to cooperate. The people that I love are in the cities. The reasons to live in the country are not just to protect yourself from a time of trouble. If you consider the poor people in the city, I'll protect you in that time of trouble. A lot of our reasoning for leaving the city is very selfish. I'm afraid they're going to do this. The economy is going to collapse. Look, when it all goes down, there is no one that will protect you but God himself. And for those of us doing a lot of the work, we're not going to make it to the country. We'll be in a rotting in a dungeon cell, like many of the greats of history. Now, I want to end with this. This is something that recently I've been studying. And uh, I'm guilty of leaving a lot of urgency on the table. So I want to show you a little something to hopefully keep the fire burning. As Jason says, all right, now Jared said, we're urgent. Let's do this. He's going to show you the practical. Uh, we've all studied the winds of strife, right? Revelation 7 talks about the winds of strife. Revelation 7, 1 to 3, and, and even through verse 4. Uh, basically, the angels have been told, release the winds, and then Jesus says, not yet, hold, hold, hold. As the description goes more in depth in the spirit of prophecy, my blood, my blood, my blood, Father, hold back the winds. Christ in his mercy looks on his people and sees they're not ready. They've been dwelling on themselves. They're selfish. The only cure to selfishness, I was talking to Pastor Cameron this morning, the only cure is working helping people, doing something. That is the cure for selfishness. And I am a selfish person, so the Lord has to keep me in the work all the time. All right, so the winds of strife. Now, this is something very interesting. In 1848, the Communist Manifesto was written by Frederick, I, Frederick Engels and Karl Marx. So it's released in the world, 1848. 1848, revolution begins to break out all over Europe. Interesting. 1849, January 5, after this year of revolution, Ellen White has a dream. She saw probation at the point of closing. The four winds were starting to be loosed, and then Jesus gives the command of the four angels to hold, hold, hold until the servants of God are sealed. As the angels were loosening the winds, over 50 revolutions were taking place in Europe. In 1848, a torrent of revolutions ripped through Europe. The storm all but swept away the conservative order 
that held sway since the fall of Napoleon in 1815. Because remember, chaos preceded Napoleon with the French Revolution and all that. Suppressing dreams of freedom and of a constitutional government. Over the course of the spring and summer, crowds of working-class radicals and middle-class liberals in Paris, Venice, Naples, Palermo, Vienna, Prague, Budapest, Krakow, Munich, and Berlin toppled the old regimes and began the task of forging a new order. Political events so dramatic had not been seen in Europe since the French Revolution. Revolutions are busting out around the world. Ellen White has a vision. The angels are loosening the winds of strife. And God says, not yet. My people are not ready. We have seen mass revolutions taking place in the last few years. If it was that way once before, I'm convicted with all my heart that it's that way again. I don't know about you, when I was watching the Arab Spring events take place and Occupy Wall Street actually went up there, unbelievable climate. You just thought, I literally had this conviction, we've not done the work and it's over. Horrible feeling. And it's like the Lord said, stop. There is no reason all those things should have stopped like they had. God is literally, I believe, one last time holding the winds of strife for us to go after these children he has in the cities. And for some of us, I know for me, it will be my own salvation if I do not get to work because this is the cure for my selfishness. So as we see this, I hope you've seen the case built that yes, we have a work to do in the cities and the time is short to do it because it's getting more and more difficult. Jason is going to share, starting in about five minutes, on the Waldensian secret. One group in history knew the secret of how to get off of this planet quickly, and it was the Waldensians. He's going to share with you that and some very practical elements that are taking place in cities today. So thank you for letting me share. Let me close with a word of prayer if I can. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for letting us uh, all come together today. And Lord, laying the foundation for what Jason is going to share of the practical, okay, we understand this issue, we understand this web that the devil has been weaving to entrap us all, but you've given us answers to be safe and have peace during this storm. And Lord, I believe with all my heart you're about to do something magnificent on this earth with your people, reaching out to your other people who live in the great centers of population. Please show us that and make it clear through Jason. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.